The Enigma of Oaks Ames, Oaks Ames Symposium, Stonehill College, September 21st. First lecture by Edmund Hans, The Enigma of Oaks Ames, The Early Years, 1804 to 1852. Okay, good morning. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. My name is Frederick Ames, and welcome to Stonehill Library and the John W. Martin Jr. Institute for Law and Society. We are grateful to Stonehill College and to the College Archives for hosting us today. I want to add a special note of gratitude to the director to uh, Archives and Historical Collections, Nicole Casper. Nicole has been the linchpin of organizing this event, and simply put, without her, uh, this symposium would not have happened. Thank you. And Maury Klein, if Nicole Casper is the producer of this event, then Maury Klein is its director. He suggested the title for the symposium and he shapes, shaped the content. His imp imprimatur added the academic gravitas that was responsible for attracting our Pulitzer Prize winning speaker and Murray's friend, T.J. Stiles. In 1973, after the shovel buildings in Easton were sold, a large collections of shovels and extensive Ames Company records going back to the first days of the company from the 1770s and up until the 1950s were found and donated to Stonehill College. From 1973 to 83, the catalog and care of the collection was the responsible of Professor of History, Judy Sergi, who worked with students until 1983 when Louise Keneally became the college's first full-time archivist, overseeing not only the shovels, but the college archives and the Novak papers as well. In 1998, Greg Gaylor, who was using the collection as part of his research for his doctoral dissertation, was hired as the collection's first-time full-time curator. From 1973 to 2001, the collection was stored at Stonehill in the basement of Donahue Hall, which was formerly known as Stonehouse Hill House, built in 1905 for Frederick Lothrop Ames. The estate was sold to the to the Congregation of Holy Cross in 1935, and Stonehill College opened in 1948. In 1988, when the college built a new library, it closed the Cushing Martin Library. The building was renovated and reopened in 2001 as an academic building, Cushing Martin Hall. As part of that reservation, Greg Gaylor worked with college officials to create a more appropriate home for the shovel collection. During, Doug, excuse me, during Greg's tenure at Stonehill, additional collections, including ones relating to the Ames family and the Ames Shovel Company, were also acquired. And uh, I'm glad to see that Greg is here today. And there is Greg sitting right over there next to the lady in the orange sweater. So. Uh, most recently, the Ames family have donated the papers of David Ames Sr. Last year, over 300 people visited Stonehill to see the college's famous collection of 783 shovels, and there will be a tour at lunchtime, and the collection is, is just a short distance away, and there are 783 different types of shovels. Uh, the shovels were part of the 1973 donation as well. 20 to 30 people came to use the collection to do primary resource and thanks to the continued generosity of the David Ames family, the archives will soon embark on several digitation projects and begin to make parts of the collection available electronically. 
Our sponsor today is the Northeastern Savings Bank, whose generous donation is in keeping with their tradition of supporting local events and organizations in Easton. My personal thanks to Vice President Courtney Palm for her help in securing the donation. Also, thanks to Carolyn Cole and Paula Peterson of the Oaks Ames Memorial Hall Association for their help with promoting the symposium and organizing the speaker's reception at the hall. The symposium is being video recorded by Easton Community Access TV. This is our schedule. We'll start this morning with two speakers, Edmund Hands, who will talk on Oaks's varied interest and his early life in Easton, and Jay Wickersham will talk on Oaks's involvement in the Shovel Company from the 1840s up until his election to Congress in 1863. There will be a 10-minute breaker, excuse me, there'll be a 10-minute break between speakers for you to stretch your legs and get some coffee. Now each speaker will talk for 45 minutes and there will be a 15-minute uh, time allowed for questions. After lunch, Maury Klein will speak on Oaks, the Union Pacific, and the Credit Mobilier scandal. Our fourth and final speaker will be T.J. Stiles, the last days of Oaks Ames, the first days of a new era. We are scheduled to end at 3.30. Following the symposium from 4.30 to 6.30, there is a speaker's reception at the Oaks Ames Memorial Hall. We want to give special thanks to the generosity of Condra Goldrup, a farmer's daughter restaurant, for providing the food. We're almost there. Okay, the reception is no charge to attendees. All four speakers will be at the reception and you will have the opportunity to chat with them. Complimentary wine will be served. Now, the purpose of the symposium, this is, I don't have everything written out word for word here. Uh, the road, this is a quote, the road must be built and you are the man to do it. Take hold of it yourself. By building the Union Pacific, you will be the remembered man of your generation. And most of us in this room recognize that as the quote, uh, Abraham Lincoln talking to Oakes in 1865 to get him to sign on to this project. Now, 140 years later, 154 years later, when people hear the name Oakes Ames, they usually say, oh yes, Oakes Ames, the Credit Mobilier scandal. They say it with a knowing look and they don't. And that is why we're here today to give Oakes a long overdue examination of his life, of his times, and the man himself. Uh, Oakes was given a short shrift by history. I'm hoping this will be an inflection point for history to move back to the reality of Oakes Ames. Thank you. Our first speaker, Edmund Hans, is a retired history teacher and a longtime resident of Southeastern. Few residents of Easton have given as much of their time and talent as he has to this town. For many years, he has served on the board of directors of the Easton Historical Society. In 1993, he published Easton's Neighborhoods, the first comprehensive history of the community since 1886. He has written numerous articles focusing on Easton in the 18th and 19th century and on the work of other well-known architects in Easton besides H.H. Richardson. A natural speaker, you're gonna get a natural speaker for a change. Um, he is considered Easton's most entertaining tour guide. As an active, active genealogist, as well as an historian, he has researched several hundred Easton houses, 
for inclusion in the Massachusetts Historical Commission's MACRIS database, which is a tremendous amount of work. His current research interest is a Civil War generation in Easton. And before uh, Ed comes up, I would just like to, to call attention to a special Oaks Ames descendant who is here, has traveled a great distance, and that's Anna Lee Froelich. Now, Anna Lee should be greatly appreciated by us because almost single-handedly, she turned the Ames Monument out in Wyoming into a National Historic Park, a landmark park, excuse me. Yeah, she's known for correcting. And uh, a really, a, a, it was a heroic effort. I mean, really Herculean. And we owe a tremendous amount of her as a loyal descendant of Oaks. And we had a great time out there in Laramie. She's also a great hostess. So again, I would like us to give a round of applause to acknowledge Anna Lee and all she has done. Thank you. And it is now my pleasure to introduce our, our first speaker, Edmund Hands. Uh, welcome. Um, I always believe when you introduce somebody, you sort of downplay uh, accomplishments, especially that great speaker stuff. But we'll we'll work on that. Uh, I do want to announce that my friend here in the front will be leaving for a funeral. That's not a sign for a general exodus. So please hang with me. Uh, I'd also like to uh, say uh, thanks to a, a number of people who essentially are sitting right over there. Uh, this presentation would not be possible without the extensive research of two people. Uh, and that's Greg Gaylor, whose uh, thesis uh, is the basis for our modern understanding of the founding of the shovel company uh, and uh, Oaks's uh, early involvement there. And then the second person uh, is uh, uh, Sarah Ames, Mrs. John Ames III, who's absolutely fantastic editing of the diary of Oaks's wife, Evelina, um, has appeared online, uh, and uh, she is also the source of almost all the uh, family photographs that you'll be seeing today. Uh, without those two, we would not have my presentation, which may prove to be good or bad, we'll see. So, uh, enigmas. What, it, uh, what do enigmas mean? Well, I am dealing with the uh, era from 1804 to 1852, and when we blessedly get to the last slide, that's the first time I'll mention a railroad. Um, because for me, there are plenty of other uh, enigmas to deal with with Oaks. Uh, the first one uh, happened 171 years ago today, uh, September 21st, when a tall, um, non-bearded man from Illinois uh, was giving a speech uh, in Taunton. Uh, that's Abraham Lincoln. And the big question for historical researchers in Easton for many, many years is, were there Ameses present? And uh, after spending a summer trying to figure that out, um, I'm no closer to an answer than uh, anybody else has been. Uh, the evidence is good that they were there, but we'll never be able to prove it uh, unless um, a diary or something like that comes up. Uh, 
Another enigma, another very simple enigma, is this picture right, right up here. Um, it says Oak James, and it has a, a wonderful uh, provenience. It says uh, National Archives. They should know what they're talking about. And it comes from uh, the Brady Collection. But this is the only picture I have ever seen of Oak James without a beard, okay? Uh, and uh, looking at how the beard ages, longer, shorter, lighter, darker, um, the date here of 1862 uh, is probably wrong. Um, my guess is, after doing some photo analysis, that it is Oaks Ames, but um, from the uh, 1850s. So it's probably the earliest picture you're ever going to be seeing of, of Oaks. Uh, the family uh, in the first two generations didn't really jump uh, to get their picture taken very often. So with that, uh, let's get started. So um, in order to understand Oaks Ames and his character, which is essentially what I'm going to be looking at, you need to understand his father, Oliver Ames, and his mother. Um, unfortunately, for the pages of history, women at the beginning of the 19th century didn't leave much of a trace. Uh, so uh, uh, this is a picture of Susanna Anger, uh, but um, that's about all I'm going to be saying about her, uh, other than the fact she died in 1847. Oliver Ames was the dominant figure in, uh, in Oaks's life. And uh, he uh, was born in West Bridgewater. Uh, and there is uh, a, a park over there that uh, has uh, some of the remains of his operation, um, of his father's operation. Captain John Ames was uh, Oaks's grandfather. And Oliver was one of his younger sons. Now, we were talking last night about how did Oliver get interested in shovels. Uh, uh, John made shovels and gun locks and just about everything that a blacksmith makes. Um, but uh, one of the older uh, sons, David Ames, actually uh, was the um, director for a, a relatively short time of the Springfield Armory, which was sort of, as, as Fred said last night, the Silicon Valley of, of uh, early 19th century America. So um, Oliver apprenticed with him for several years and then came back with the idea of not being just a blacksmith, but being someone who uses um, more modern techniques to produce a large number of one item, and the item he chose were shovels. Uh, for the next decade, that pursuit was very, very single-minded. Now, one of the things that we're going to be talking about here uh, goes back to discussions when Greg was actually working on his thesis. His research shows that uh, Oakes was a really tough businessman to the point where, where he was able to uh, manipulate the bankruptcy of his brother's business to his, his own advantage. Um, and the operation of, of the, or the interaction between the Ames boys um, did seem to be a little tough. Uh, so Greg had this, this picture of a rough, tough businessman. And yet, uh, when you look at the uh, uh, personal uh, remembrances of people who were alive at the time of Oaks, uh, the thing that they speak about is his works of charity, his tenderheartedness. And I suppose it's easy to say that about the biggest employer in town. But um, those seem to be corroborated. So what I see trying to rec 
reconcile these two is a person that had sort of a tough outer shell, his business side, and then personal side was much different. We're going to be explaining that. All right, so in um, 1803, Oliver Ames uh, fended his way through the wilderness and ended up uh, uh, parked in front of where our town library is today uh, on a plank bridge surrounded by trees. Uh, he told uh, the family later on that uh, uh, when he pulled his chaise up, the, the, the tree branches were so close they brushed up against the side of his, his wagon. He was here because Alephalet Leonard III had a nail factory and had gone bankrupt. The Leonards and the Ameses were both early families in the, uh, in the iron business here in Massachusetts, long pedigrees going back to the 17th century. But uh, Leonard had gone broke uh, for a variety of reasons. The business climate for nail making was not that strong in the early 19th century due to foreign competition. So um, young Oliver, who had just been married a few months before, came over here looked over the situation and discovered that there was a house, uh, a dam, and um, a small nail factory. And at that time, the small, uh, uh, the small pond that was behind the dam was called the Trout Hole. And um, that's today what we call Shovel Shop Pond. The space between the Trout Hole and the other large pond that you see here is known to Easterners as the island. Um, it's more islandly than you might imagine because Quisset Brook runs down one side of it and on the other side is the uh, flume for the um, uh, shovel company. So um, the island was where the nail factory was located and we have a picture here of the house. The center portion of the house was what was there in 1803. It was probably a full cape. And then um, Oliver, as he was modifying the, uh, the factory uh, for shovel production, uh, also added an addition to the house expecting a, uh, a large family. And that was a pretty good expectation because uh, the second child in the family was born uh, the following year. Now, let's take a look at that family. And again, you notice the dearth of uh, there's no baby pictures, folks, primarily because photography really hadn't been invented by the time these guys were babies. But um, uh, you see the classic picture of the, the three oldest brothers, Oaks, Oliver, and Horatio. Um, if you look at the picture of Horatio, it looks like he has white knee socks on, but it's a trick of perspective. That's actually the wall in back of him. He's dressed as normally as the others. You also notice uh, that Oliver Jr., uh, has that really stylish hat and a really stylish uh, sack coat on, whereas um, uh, Oaks kind of looks a little rumpled. And that's, that's, the, uh, uh, that's the look. His wife spent uh, innumerable hours patching and cleaning his clothes because he was very careless with his attire. So Oaks came along, was born in, uh, in Easton in 1804. Horatio followed the next year. Horatio was larger uh, and stronger than his older brother almost immediately. And that's, I think, an important part of the story. Uh, Oliver came along a little bit later, and we'll talk about that in a moment. William was born here in Easton in, uh, in uh, excuse me, was born in, in Plymouth in 1812. Uh, and then uh, the two girls were uh, born here in uh, uh, 
1814 and 1817. Every single man involved in this, including the, the husbands of the two daughters, were involved in, in making the shovel company work, either um, close by, as uh, Oaks and Oliver, or uh, far away, manning stores or uh, getting orders. So um, in the early 19th century, business was very much a family affair. So for those of you who um, aren't from Easton, Easton has a lot of neighborhoods. And, uh, and Oliver came to Northeastern. When he came to the town, there were about 170 houses and um, 1,500 uh, people in town. There were almost as many barns as there were houses. Um, Northeastern was pretty sparsely settled. Uh, when Oliver stopped on that plank bridge, he said, I could see one farmhouse in, in that area. Um, there was a, a, a fair number of houses out on the Bay Road, which connected uh, Boston to Taunton and New Bedford. And when he uh, took his shovels to work, uh, to Boston to sell, uh, he would take them up the Bay Road. Starting an industrial enterprise, which he had in mind of being very, very large, put him at um, a distance from his neighbors. And it would be several generations before the farmers of Easton really got comfortable with the fact of they had a giant shovel shump company uh, in, in Northeastern. And uh, that's a little bit beyond our topic today, but that's a sort of a reality of uh, um, 19th century Easton. So Oliver found a blacksmith shop essentially for making nails, and that's not a good way to make shovels, particularly the way he wanted to do it, which was through uh, division of labor. Uh, any blacksmith can, can make a shovel, it's not that difficult, uh, but to make dozens and dozens of shovels you needed to do something. So uh, one of the first things he did, uh, according to my sources, i.e. Greg, uh, is that uh, he modified the trip hammer so that it would be able to uh, handle the more complex shape of a shovel. Uh, in fact, Oliver uh, patented uh, um, a trip hammer um, uh, in 1810, so uh, he was a, a technologist uh, in his own right. He also made the tools, uh, and he also very, very quickly built a handle shop because this was not an, a, all a blacksmith job. With this division of labor, he brought in other people, two of which are important. One is uh, Nathan Pratt, who was a, uh, a blacksmith, and the other was John Bisbee, uh, and Bisbee was either hired and came to Easton or was picked up along the road uh, to Plymouth. But Bisbee was a handle man. And um, in the early days, shovel handles in Easton uh, had the famous Ames Bend. And the Ames Bend was created by sticking the, brooms, the, the shovel handle in Shovel Shop Pond and waiting for it to soften up before it was bent. Uh, not so high tech, but it was effective. Well, once uh, shovel production got underway, uh, Oliver uh, took the shovels himself to Boston. He would do a couple of dozen at a time, go to Boston, and try to sell them. But Ames shovels were lighter than the traditional shovels that had come in from, from England and did not find ready acceptance from the, uh, from the merchants there. So oftentimes he would be coming home with a load of shovels and he'd stop along the way, according to his great-grandson Winthrop, 
and uh, offer them to farmers, saying, if you like them, just remember the OA brand, okay, or o uh, Oak Sames brand. Uh, I love this picture of the uh, ox carts because uh, this is what Oliver used to haul his stuff to Boston, and uh, these, uh, uh, this ox transportation was used at the shovel works uh, into the 20th century uh, because the company never put in a yard engine to move uh, shovels uh, from here to there. So one of the problems was that the, um, that the Quisit Brook, where the shovel shop was located, had a limited flow. Flow means it was a dinky little stream, but the good point is that it had a fair drop as it passed through Northeastern Village. So it was usable for power, but you had to be careful um, and you might have to shut down during the summertime. So one of the very first things that Oliver tried to do is get control of uh, as much of the water power as possible. And this particular uh, slide, uh, you can see I cited the, I cited the source, uh, which is Greg's forging ahead, uh, indicates a, a number of things. One is the side of the, the shovel works, that's at J. Uh, and um, G, the side of the Eastern Manufacturing Company, we'll get back to in a few minutes. But the initial target of, of uh, Oliver was the Randall's grist mill. The, Randall family had owned this uh, property in this area for a number of years. Uh, the founder of the family was getting older and the land was being sold off piecemeal. And so uh, almost immediately in 1805 and 1806, uh, Oliver um, uh, bought this land. Uh, and he also bought a little further up uh, at uh, D, the hoe shop. And the hoe shop was where Nathan Pratt had his blacksmith shop. and um, uh, once that was purchased, um, Oliver installed a third person, uh, Asa Waters, to um, manufacture uh, hose there. Asa Waters is an unsung hero of the family because while um, uh, Oliver had gone to Plymouth, um, in, in, which I'll tell you about in a sec, uh, Asa managed the shovel company here. Um, how did that happen? Well, uh, in uh, 1805, Captain John Ames, Oliver's father, died and um, left the shovel works in West Bridgewater to Oliver. That was wonderful. That expanded his capacity, but at a time when he really didn't need to make more shovels, he needed to sell more shovels. So it was a mixed blessing, a, a blessing for the future. The bad point initially was that the, uh, the dad had built up a huge pile of debt. So there were a couple of ways to proceed. Oliver could have hunkered down and made a lot of shovels and paid off the debt. That was not his character. Uh, so what he did was he mortgaged everything he had in town to his brother David, uh, who I learned last night was complaining about uh, uh, how uh, Oliver had settled their father's estate. But uh, he was willing to loan um, $1,600 uh, which um, Oliver used to purchase uh, more land from Thomas Randall. So Oliver was loaded with debt. He was still looking to expand. What's going to happen? Well, the answer to what's going to happen was that uh, uh, luck came along and um, offered a positive solution. Captain Nathaniel Russell, who is the owner of the Plymouth Iron Works, offered him a job 
where he could make shovels and Russell would actually sell those shovels. Uh, and uh, Oliver could also manage the shovel works. So what he did in 1807 was move his entire family and Nathan Pratt and John Bisbee to Plymouth to where that little red dot is, uh, which is which is this little house right here on Town Brook in Plymouth. The house is still there. Um, it looks a heck of a lot better than when it was put up on mattress uh, uh, back in 1986. Uh, and uh, what did this mean to, uh, to Oakes? Well, Oakes was three years old. His brother uh, Horatio was two. Uh, a little kid that age could see this as a great adventure. We know one thing. Um, this is probably where Oakes uh, developed his lifelong interest in fishing as a hobby, which did not bode well for uh, his relationship with his dad and schoolmasters, but um, uh, how could a boy resist when the town brook was right in back? Um, and if you uh, took a look at that map of Plymouth, which I so quickly passed by, Plymouth was a lot bigger than Easton. It had docks, it had rope works, it had all sorts of fascinating things for uh, a young growing boy. More people than he w had ever seen before uh, back here in sleepy old Easton. Uh, and um, well, this is a map from 1832. The street grid hadn't really changed that much and the number of houses were about the same. Um, so uh, it was a very stimulating environment probably a stimulating environment for playing hooky. Oliver Ames was unlikely to allow his son to um, fish and wander the streets of Plymouth. Um, Oliver Jr. in a, in a reminiscence said that uh, when uh, I wasn't in school, I was expected to be working on the farm or uh, working at the shovel works. And um, uh, young people could actually get involved in the shovel making process. Uh, at a, uh, a stage called wedging, where little fingers were needed to wedge small pieces of wood or dirt uh, in between the blades and the handle uh, as part of the process. So um, it's probably where he started, and he probably started at the bench beside John Bisbee. This is a picture of John Bisbee in his 80th year, um, shortly before he passed away. Bisbee and Pratt stayed with the shovel company for um, 60 plus years, uh, and Bisbee did well for himself and has a nice little house that you can see uh, today. And um, Nathan Pratt, for some reason, never got a house, but uh, he boarded at the, um, at the Millie Packard house, which is uh, also something you can see, because it's still there today. Back in Easton, uh, while all this stuff was going on in Plymouth, Oliver was buying more land. He was upgrading the shovel company. He was putting in that uh, patented trip hammer that uh, I had mentioned before. And ultimately, uh, around 1813, uh, he was able to finally get control of the Randall Grist Mill and all that property, which gave him uh, a nice plot of land on what was uh, um, the back end of the main street in town, which allowed him to move out of that little house next on Pond Street to a much larger home. Um, he was clearly planning to come back to Easton, clearly planning to do that all through his, uh, his uh, time there. And um, 
ultimately was forced to do it because the Plymouth Iron Works closed. So he got back, he ended up in the house here, which is in the middle, uh, middle ground here, uh, when it was half completed. Uh, he lived in the unplastered side while the even less finely constructed area was, um, uh, was finished. So now the family was back. They were living in their own house, not a house that belonged to the iron foundry. And um, old Oliver, in the words of William Chaffin, um, decided he wanted to be lord of the village. Okay. Uh, and, um, and moved forward in that direction. A quick word here about William Chaffin. He was the town historian um, and wrote the first really um, extensive history of the town in which, as we'll see, he was uh, uh, willing to praise just about any member of the Ames family who was their, he was their, their minister and, and uh, uh, he certainly was patronized by the family. Um, and so everything aimed at making the Ameses look particularly fantastic. However, he uh, was asked by um, Oaks Ames of Borderland at, at the turn of the 20th century to write reminiscences of Oakes, who he knew extremely well, and Oliver, old Oliver, who he could know by talking to people who knew him. It's totally different kind of history. One is, one is very, let's, let's canonize these people, and the other one, well, ah, they had their faults. The faults that Oakes had were, Charming faults that we can all sort of, uh, sort of uh, go along with. Oliver was a little different. So let's, let's get into that a little bit. One of the first things that, um, that Oliver did when he uh, was on the move back and forth between Plymouth and, and here was he built a textile mill. He didn't know much about textiles. According to Greg, uh, he had built some textile machinery while in Plymouth for the iron foundry and decided to do the same thing here and then uh, hire an agent to work on this. Now, if you follow uh, Greg's uh, thesis, this was sort of a ploy because uh, what he really wanted to do was form a company, the Eastern Manufacturing Company, which would end up with his partners um, controlling uh, all the mills and the water flow along the, uh, the river. Uh, this also was an opportunity to um, create Easton's first corporation. Uh, and corporations in those days, as we were discussing last night, were aimed at being part of the public good. All right. um, ultimately, what happened was that uh, Oliver retained a 3 eighths share in the new corporation. The agent they hired to run this was so bad um, that uh, he ended up losing eight or nine thousand uh, dollars before he sold out. In 1830, um, the mill, deeply in debt, passed to a man named Shepard Leach, who was Ames's main rival at the time for the dominant person in the village. Shepard Leach had all the advantages over Oliver Ames. He was a, a, a resident of the town. He was uh, well respected. He was a very benign man. Everybody liked him. Uh, he wasn't terribly pushy, and he wasn't terribly innovative. He was an iron man, but it was a man that had furnaces and forges and, and things like that. He wasn't trying to create an entirely new industry. 
Luckily for the history of the Ames family in Easton, he died in a, what we would call a car crash. His, his uh, chaise tipped over and he was killed in 1832. So between 1813 and the 1820s, the machinations to get this Easton Manufacturing Company uh, going really dominated the conversations at home uh, as, as Oakes and Oliver Jr. were growing up. That deal-making aspect that we see later probably had its start in this little building right here. Why? Well, uh, Oliver pushed his sons to get involved in businesses of their own. And Oakes really took advantage of this when he came of age. Uh, and one of the very first things he invested in was uh, uh, this particular building. He bought it from the estate of, uh, uh, of Shepherd Leach, sold the machinery, rented out the blacksmith shop, and then set up a, a, a bonnet wire maker in, in here uh, to pay him rent. And ultimately, what happened is after uh, uh, a number of years doing it that way, he took this prime piece of property that just happened to be in the way of this uh, recreation, recre uh, reclamation project of the shovel works. This is where the machine shop for the, uh, the shovel works, which is, you know, you know, that's the big building right next to the street. Oak sold that back to the company and uh, made a profit. As Greg points out, just to be historically accurate, um, we don't know because of the way the books were kept whether this was sort of a holding company kind of arrangement or whether Oakes actually seriously was working independently. He also built a boarding house, the first boarding house in town. Not um, uh, People in the 1820s, as the shovel company began to grow, uh, began renting out spaces in their houses and maybe even building a small cape here and there for boarders. But Oakes was the first person to build a large boarding house, something he probably regretted. So what was the character of Oliver Ames? Uh, and um, I have some quotes. You need, to, you need to hear these. So in uh, the history of Easton, Reverend Chaffin said, he was a man of strong and resolute will, of great force of character, indomitable energy and uh, persevering industry. Born of the people, he was always very simple in his taste, as well as democratic in his feelings and principles. His judgment of persons were based upon what he believed to be the real worth of anyone without reference to station or condition. Sounds like a great guy. Writing privately, Reverend Chaffin described him this way. He was a stern puritanical type who hated shams and any unfaithfulness to duty, and his indignation against those who practiced them were terrible, sometimes being punctuated by the application of his boot to the offender. Okay. After reading this summer about Oliver, offenders seem to have included people who disagreed with his views on temperance, Unitarianism, the Whig Party, and pretty much anyone who disagreed for anything in general. Uh, people, it, it was noted, would cross the street rather than walk by him and face a potential cutting comment. And Chaffin concludes, in his likes and dislikes, he was equally, uh, equally decided. So summing up, his, his, temper, his temperament was volcanic, 
And I think this daguerreotype, which is the rare one that you don't normally see, the, the sepia-toned one, kind of sums up its character much better than the engraving uh, from uh, uh, an earlier one. So even when the boys got older, in 1844, Oliver retires and, uh, and gives up day-to-day -day management of the country, company. Even then, the boys were still terrified of their father's temperament. And there are all sorts of wonderful stories um, about Oliver looking at, at the modern version of his shovel, not liking it, and smashing them to pieces, and then yelling at the boys. My favorite one is that they, uh, they, they brought in new handle uh, bending machines, and Oliver didn't like those, so he went to the uh, company Teamster and got him to load them on the, uh, the uh, company carts and hide them in a, in a, in a barn uh, so that Oakes and Oliver couldn't find them. Like many guys in his generation, uh, Oliver was a very strict disciplinarian and used the horsewhip a lot. So this was probably excessive um, because not only did he you know, not, uh, not spare the rod when it came to like, inattentiveness to, um, to, to school practices, and, and Oakes was definitely inattentive uh, to school practices, uh, it involved wrestling. Uh, it was said that, he, uh, that Oliver would take Horatio and, and Oakes out into the barn to teach them wrestling moves. Oliver was a champion wrestler. And um, he would bring the horsewhip with him to keep them up to the mark. Okay. Well, Horatio was by far the better wrestler. He became a champion. Oakes, the oldest brother, did not become the champion. Okay. So now here's the problem for him. He's not going to be a champion wrestler. And his younger brother, Oliver Jr., was the scholarly one. So he was doing better in school. Uh, as, as Reverend Chaffin said, Oakes's inattentiveness to his studies gave his father a lot of opportunity to exercise his strong right arm with that horsewhip. And when that didn't work, uh, Oliver hired a schoolmaster whose main claim to fame was that he had actually scarred a child with, uh, with a horsewhip. Uh, this feeling extended to the next generation. Poor Frank uh, Ames, which was uh, uh, the youngest uh, son of Oaks, uh, was uh, so terrified of his grandfather that one day when he was in his teens uh, and was paddling around in a canoe with his cousin, one of the Gilmores, uh, when he was supposed to be working at the shovel works, his grandfather showed up and started to yell at him to come ashore. He was so terrified, he rolled to the other side of the pond and, and <laughs> took off. Um, that's going to be interesting. Uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, the Gilmore boy, who lived nine miles away, ran all the way home. The good news for our friend was that Oakes was very good with shovels. And obviously, that was something his, his father was, was really, uh, really proud of. So around the age of 16, uh, Oakes became, uh, began a more formal apprenticeship um, at the Shovel Works. It became tradition in the Ames family that uh, any male member of the family, whether they were going to be working in the front office or not, learned to make a shovel. And uh, Oakes's, uh, Oakes's son, 
Oliver III, who became governor of Massachusetts, got to be so good at that that uh, the that the uh, shovels that um, went to the uh, centennial celebration in 1876 were made completely by him. Uh, Oakes was very good at it. Between uh, age 16 and age 21, he went through the whole series and became the superintendent of the, of the manufacturing process before moving into the, the main office where he wasn't, that was not his forte. His forte was the actual process of making shovels. That's the site of the, the boarding house there. Uh, and this is the map of the town uh, at age 25. You can see that it, it, wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as well developed as you might imagine for 1825. There were still relatively few houses there. Ramcat is an interesting um, name. Uh, we don't quite know where that came from, but that's where the boarding house was located. In 1827, Oakes married Evelina, or Eveline, uh, Gilmore Ames uh, from Southeastern. She was the son of a, uh, she was the daughter of a very, very prosperous farmer uh, who had gone through the common schools of the town and um, learned all the uh, womanly arts of the time, cooking, cleaning, sewing, et cetera, uh, in her mother's kitchen. Uh, and they got together. She was, I, I think this is a picture from late in her life. Uh, a, a lovely uh, woman and certainly very attractive. They were married uh, and very quickly began to uh, produce children. She very quickly began to uh, take over the duties of, uh, of a modern woman. Now we're blessed by having uh, two years of her diaries, 1851, 1852, which were the 24th and 25th years of her, of her marriage. So we're not talking about a young bride. And it's very surprising how much drudgery this woman went through. She was constantly sewing. She was constantly washing and supervising the, the one or two part-time help that she, she had there. Uh, but she also knew that as the wife of the most prominent family in town, she had other duties. So those other duties included a lot of visiting. Visiting was what replaced television in those days. So. Uh, the John Tory House, which is for Eastern residents, the, uh, the site of uh, Walter's Barbershop now, uh, that housed her, her sister-in-law and brother-in-law, or sister and brother-in-law, uh, and the family visited there often. The Benjamin Buck House was across the street. Buck was a poor man who uh, um, Eveline and, and Oaks visited. In fact, she visited a lot uh, and um, so did Oaks. Oaks was a real member of the community, someone who knew the needs of the people and took care of the needs of the people. He also was the person who dealt with the Irish. And the Irish issue became a big deal in this country beginning in the 1840s. And uh, we were talking last night of how this propped up. And one of the reasons, one of the ways that it did was the theater wars in, uh, in New York City where Irish and Native American lower class people supported uh, American actors and um, the upper class supported uh, 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 British actors, which led to a huge riot that took place in May of 1848 and uh, 1849. Uh, we're pretty sure that Oakes was aware of this. It, it was in, as they say, in all the papers. 
Uh, and uh, it was uh, an indication of rising discontent in the country. 20 years later, Oakes came down on the side of the aristocrats when he uh, supported the actor Edwin Booth, uh, who was trying to bring good taste to New Yorkers um, by uh, building the Booth Theater. Um, congressman at that time, uh, Ames, took out a mortgage on the, uh, on the building. And when it almost inevitably went bankrupt, the Ames family ran the theater for several years. And this particular uh, piece of artwork that was in the theater is now in Oaks Ames Memorial Hall. So you'll be able to see this today when you go to the reception. But it's a mark that um, times were changing. Reform movements swept through the country. And a number of Easterners became involved. The temperance movement was the first. Old Oliver in 1825 stopped giving a daily rum ration to his uh, workers and replaced it with Switchell. Uh, the local minister, the congregational minister, uh, did the same. And the man in the middle, the mystery man that we don't have a picture of, Caleb Swan, uh, for medical reasons, supported the temperance movement. Oliver was a thoroughgoing Unitarian and basically said between Mohammedanism and Congregationalism, he would rather support the, the latter rather than the former. Uh, so there was an almost immediate falling out between uh, Luther and, and Oliver Ames. Uh, Swan and Oliver uh, maintained a friendship throughout most of their lives. Poor Henry French uh, showed up one day courting uh, uh, Oakes' youngest sister, uh, youngest daughter, and um, refused the coffee, refused the tea, and then Evelina said, well, we have some cider. I was making mince pie. Would you like some cider? And before he could answer yes or no, Oaks thundered, no one shall be drinking in my house. And that was the end of it. Until, in this, this very telling about their marriage, Oaks went to work and Evelina said, so would you like to have some cider? Uh, <laughs> um, and, um, Mr. French said, oh no, I would never do anything behind Mr. Ames's back that I wouldn't do in his front. And so he ended up uh, marrying uh, the daughter of the family and honeymooning in the honeymoon cottage, which is right next door to Mount Oaks Ames uh, Hall. Okay, the Irish. Uh, Oaks and Oliver quickly took, uh, took over in 1844. And at that time, uh, there were relatively few Irishmen in the, uh, in, in the shovel works. Uh, a decade later, 70% of the workforce was Irish. That was totally different than the rest of the community, which was Yankee, and extremely uh, upset with the fact that um, the Irish were there. Even old Oliver was extremely upset. Um, and the boys told him, well, if we can't get the best, second best we'll have to do. And um, they overruled him, one of the rare occasions when they did overrule him. and. Um, they began, the boys, particularly Oaks, began to support their workers. People that had the skill of making shovels were valuable. So Oaks did go out of his way to, um, to keep his workers. For instance, one example related to temperance. Oaks's favorite holiday was the 4th of July. There are three or four anecdotes about how he would uh, give people money to go to Boston to watch the 4th of July. He was approached one day by an Irish worker who was a known drinker, saying, I'd like to take time off to go to the 4th of July celebration in Boston. Oakes said, you know, you're going to get drunk and you're not going to show up for work. And, oh, no, Mr. Ames, no, it'll be fine. 
So Oakes finally relented. The man went off and didn't show up on Monday, didn't show up on Tuesday. His sister came to the shovel works and, Mr. Ames, where's my brother? This is an example of Mr. Ames's humor. He's dead, dear. Uh, and of course, that had a very bad reaction. It was an example of, of that, that's Oaks, that's his, that's his humor. Uh, ultimately though, you would think that such a strong temperance man might fire the guy for not showing up for a couple of days. He did return and he went right back into the workforce. Oaks was not about to give up on uh, an Irish worker and risk um, leading to a strike. There was no strike uh, at the shovel works for the interior people uh, during the time of Oaks's management. The farm workers struck in 1853 to have the same number of hours in a day as them. So this is a list of the infractions of the uh, Irishmen and some Yankees in the boarding houses. And in order to cut back on that, uh, in 1851, after holding uh, church services in that boarding house, uh, Oakes and Oliver used uh, company money to uh, uh, donate this space where the first Catholic chapel was. I've oftentimes got in trouble for saying this, but the company also donated land right next door for the town lockup. And the tradition in the town is they put the lockup right next to the church so that the guys who were there with a terrible hangover on Sunday morning could hear the uh, musical singing at the church. The Irish religion wasn't going over very well. Uh, at one point, Evelina visited the uh, Palm Sunday services and said, I waited an hour for the priest to show up. He showed up, he driveled over uh, a bunch of stuff in Latin, uh, and after three hours I left and went to my own church in the afternoon. Uh, that, was, that was advanced thinking for most people in Eastern at the time. And here are a couple of pictures. Uh, one of the good things is that despite the fact that only a few Irishmen um, remained in Easton for a long time. Turnover was heavy for both males and, uh, for both uh, natives and Irish, but heavier for Irish. Uh, the ones that were here were able to save enough money to build their own houses. This is William Hayes' house. Uh, he was the leading spokesman for the, the Irish. Stop me if you've heard this one. The um, um, leader of the Irish went to old Oliver, God knows why they went to him, and said, uh, Mr. Ames, could you please give up Bible reading uh, in the public schools? He was a Protestant Bible when they were Catholics. And Oliver said, you know, William Hayes, you used to come to me with hat in hand. And now you're coming, asking to change our institutions. Well, if you don't like our institutions, damn you, go back to where you came from. Sounds a little bit like today. And that's a good spot to maybe stop here because <laughs> What's happening uh, at this point? We're into the 1840s, we're into the 1850s. There's this huge beginning of party realignments. And one of the enigmas of the Ames family is how did they form the Republican Party? We know that by the time he died, old Oliver was a staunch Republican. But at the height of the anti-immigrant sentiments, he was a know nothing. He invited Ned Buntline, the man that sponsored the, the riot that we were just talking about, 
to come in and speak in the town church in, in Northeastern Village. Um, his old friend Caleb Swan drove him crazy by um, reporting everything that happened at the secret know-nothing meetings. Uh, the term know-nothing comes from what members of the party were supposed to say when they were asked what was going on. Uh, but with three quarters of the shovel factory, Irish workers, how did Oaks and how did Oliver handle this, this transition from being members of the Whig Party to being members of the Republican Party? Did they have that know-nothing phase? It looks as if they didn't. But if you were a betting man and looking in the 1840s and 1850s, you would discover that it looked as if Oliver Jr. would be the guy that ended up in Congress, but not Oaks. And that's another one of the Yes? We're going to have to stop. That's fine. I'm stopping right now. No, no, no. It was, it was great. And, um, I'm sorry, but we won't have time for questions. Or was, or was that your purpose the whole time, right? To, yeah. But anyway, I'll Ed. I'll be available uh, later today if anybody wants to talk to me or if anybody's still speaking. Oh, they will be. They will be, Ed. We always come back. Thank you. So we'll, we'll just take a very short break, say maybe a few minutes. And